0: Our guest today is Peter Gray, uh, author of Free to Learn and many other uh, essays and, and, and publications. Uh, Peter, thank you for joining us today.
1: I'm very happy to.
0: Great. And uh, we previously did an episode on the book Free to Learn by Peter, which is probably your best known book, yes? Yes. Yeah. And uh but today we're gonna to be able to talk a lot more. We've also uh referenced Peter in a few other episodes that we've done. Uh the fear-based parenting episode we referenced uh an article he had from Psychology Today. Um and he he's just comes up a lot, uh really aligned with the principles of of um of radical parenting, uh this podcast and the ideas of just Really honoring, honor, honoring our child. So we're really excited to have you. And yeah, we're appreciating that you take the time to, to talk to us on the radical parenting podcast.
1: Good. Thank you.
0: Good. So before we get into your work, will you talk to us? It, it sounds like in reading some of your work that having a child and having the experiences you had with a child kind of shifted your, your work. What was your, what was your focus and background before you had
1: a child? when I had the child, I was a graduate student in uh, neuroscience (laughs) at the Rockefeller University in New York. I was doing research on the binding of certain hormones in the brains of rats and mice. And I was continuing to do that work for a while after I had my child. I got a job when my child was three. I, uh, I got my first job as a assistant professor at Boston college. And I was continuing to do this kind of brain research. And, um, it wasn't until my son turned nine and uh, he had been protesting about school he had been really rebelling about school uh, that i got necessarily involved in questions about education and alternatives because he was clearly not going to do regular school he was just he he had made up his mind about that in a way that left us with no choice and so when he was nine years old i um, We discovered the Sudbury Valley School, and he enrolled there, a radically alternative school. And um, ultimately, that changed my career. I began to look into how that school works. um, Initially, at least in part, as a concerned father, you know, as uh, he's going to this really strange school that doesn't look like a school at all in most ways. Um, I got concerned. Uh, I was happy that he was happy there. Uh, I got concerned about whether he was uh, going to have a good adult life. Uh, would he be able to go to college if he wanted to from such a school? What kind of a job would he be able to get? Where they're not doing any, they're not, in, they're not enforcing any academic training at all. They don't do testing. They don't even offer classes. Uh, Your learn the way you learn is up to you. Really, radically different. Uh, the school had already been in existence for. Uh, about 14-15 years at the time that um, he enrolled and I ended up doing a study of the graduates of the school to find out uh, to answer my questions as a father and I ended up publishing the study in the American Journal of Education which was an entirely different journal from where I was used to publishing. Uh, and um, ultimately that changed my career. I continued doing brain research for a while, but ultimately I got more interested in questions about how children learn, the role of play in children's learning, um, uh, and really began to question the foundation of uh, what we think of as education, in which I'm convinced is not education. It's our schooling system is, I'm convinced is not an educational system. It's a schooling system, which is something quite different. And
0: and how has your background in neuroscience helped inform uh, this work? Yeah, I mean,
1: I'm fundamentally a biologist. And so, and I still consider myself fundamentally a biologist, even though I've been working in a department of psychology and neuroscience. but i um so, I think biologically, and that's why I talk about the biological foundations for children's education i think about i i um I label myself as an evolutionary psychologist as well as a developmental psychologist an evolutionary psychologist means that I'm interested. In looking at human behavior from a Darwinian perspective, the idea that we have a certain human nature, that there are certain characteristics of us, or certain instincts, certain drives that came about by natural selection and to serve useful purposes. And so, this is how I look at education. I think of, I talk about the educative instincts or the educative drives that evolved over time that enable um, and motivate children to um, educate themselves. So I write about what those drives are, uh, how we adults can work with those drives instead of against them. Our school system works against those drives. It shuts those drives absolutely off. Uh, and um, and I think the reason that a school like Sudbury Valley, where my son ultimately went, um, and why self-directed education in general works is because it's a, it's an approach to education that allows children to use their natural ways of educating themselves rather than shutting those off and then using coercion rewards and punishments as the motivating force.
0: Will you give us a couple examples? I mean, movement is is a clear one. Uh, what, what are some other kind of ways that you think the school works against the natural evolved kind of learning style? Well,
1: well, I have to first say, what are the natural evolved learning mechanisms? So curiosity is number one, Right. Children are curious. They come into the world absolutely curious. Every child is curious. There's no such thing as a non curious child except one who has very serious brain damage. Children are curious from the moment they're born. They're already exploring the world. The reason you have to baby proof your house is because your child, your baby wants to explore everything, get into everything poke those fingers or whatever into the light sockets to see what happens, right? Drop things on the floor to see what happens. The children are constantly, as soon as they can move, they're moving around to explore things. That's why they're moving. So they're exploring the world in every single way they can and think of how much they learn before they ever start school through their own self-exploration. So curiosity is the main educative instinct. The second educative instinct that I talk about, and the one that I focus probably most of my writing on, is play, playfulness. So it's interesting. The way I the way I look at it, there's two aspects to education. One is the acquisition of knowledge, of information. What's out there? How does it work? What do I know about this thing? What do I know about these people? That's curiosity. That's how you acquire knowledge. So knowledge is part of education. The other part of education is skills, how to do things, how to ride a bicycle, how to, how to read, how to, how to use numbers, how to do things, how to use your body in effective ways, how to get along with other people. All kinds of skills, learning skills, play as how children learn skills. So it's kind of a, a neat division. There you, curiosity is how children acquire knowledge. Play is how they practice various kinds of skills. And of course, in school, curiosity is shut off because you can't have... 20 or 30 kids in the same class and expect them to all be curious about the same thing at the same time. You've got to make them learn stuff that you, that the curriculum says that you've got to make them learn, and that means you have to shut off curiosity. You can't possibly have a school with, with a bunch of kids in the class expecting them to do all the same thing, take the same test, and let curiosity not be shut off one of the primary reasons my son could not deal with school is he could not shut off curiosity he was simply incapable or unwilling to do it (laughs) and therefore he refused to get himself interested in things that he simp or to do things that he simply was not interested in or where or where he couldn't ask honest questions because the teacher thought that was disruptive to ask questions about what they were learning So curiosity is obviously shut off in school. Play becomes recess. It's not thought of as part of learning. It's a break from learning. It's a, you know, it's recreation. There's some kind of acknowledgement. Well, children can't be sitting in their seats all the time, so we have to give them a break where they can play. So play is not understood as the way that children acquire skills. So you know, I also write about sociability as a, as a drive, um, somewhat separate from the other two. That children are naturally interested in other people. They want to know what other people know. They want to share what they know with other people. And so children are naturally learning by observing other people by listening to them. That's part of curiosity, but it's. Um, but I think it deserves a separate category, and at least I give it that, as uh, because it's so important to children's education, what they're learning from other people, by paying attention to other people, by overhearing them. When I talk to parents, I often point out that your kids learn more by eavesdropping on you than they do by listening to your lectures to them.
0: Great. Thank you. I'm sure Kara and I both have lots of questions. I have more, but Kara, I don't want to monopolize. So why don't you jump in?
2: Um, Sure. So yeah, I'm entranced by this idea that like children can just learn everything they need to know to be full members of society without any effort on anyone's part. Like, and maybe that's a simplification. My question is, I'm really um, fascinated by this idea of, of students learning on their own, and how I can, as an adult, facilitate that without squashing curiosity, without, you know, I was really interested in the research in your book that talks about the inhibitory effect of teachers, which is just like gut-wrenching, right? Is that like, the, I think the study was where when when the children were, were demonstrated an object, that they showed much less interest in it when they were just given the object to explore on their own and find out all the different things they could do with it they found out more things that they could do with it on their own than when they were shown a certain way to do it then they stopped exploring and so you know as as a as a parent and as a teacher you know that's like a bombshell really and um I so I'm I'm interested in like can we do a better job facilitating learning without like just completely starting from scratch and doing all, you know, Destroy, you know, like taking, dismantling the whole education system. What do you think about
1: that? Yeah, well, there's a lot in what you've just said. And uh, so let me start with your statement about without any effort on anyone's part. I need to correct that. (laughs) Children are putting in enormous effort into their learning, Mm. it's self motivated effort. Watch any little child, and they are exerting lots of effort. It's not like the learning just happens passively to them. They are actively exploring. They are creating situations. They're getting themselves into problems to be solved and so on and so forth. Children learn by doing and they're constantly doing. And in terms of the adults, so what what is the adult's role in self-directed education? The adult's role is not to tell the children what to learn, not to test them, not to decide what they should learn and not learn. The adult's role is to provide a good environment for the child to provide an environment that optimizes the child's ability to learn about the culture that they're growing up in so a child is not going to learn how to read and write or type no, nobody really writes anymore <laughs> uh, wh- or use numbers appropriately if they're growing up in a world that doesn't have reading or <laughs> writing or numbers you know so you so you need a literate environment a numerate environment you need to the child needs to see people reading the child needs to be read to the child needs to have some reason to want to read or the child isn't going to uh, going to read Uh, Similarly, the child has, if you want, if the child is going to use numbers, and we we live in a numerate culture, it's important that you kind of understand numbers, you don't, nobody uses the math that's learned in high school, but everybody uses the, everybody, for everybody it's advantageous to know how to count and how to add numbers and what it means to add numbers or divide by them, what fractions are, what percentages are, and so on and so forth. So if you raise a child in um, in an environment in which people are using numbers, you're cutting recipes in half in the kitchen, you're playing games that involve adding up scores, you're calculating batting averages if you're interested in baseball. If you're growing up in the world, as most people do, where numbers are being used, then children are going to learn how to use numbers. You don't have to teach them to use numbers. They'll learn how to use them. So that's the challenge uh, if you are uh, for a school like the Sudbury Valley School and the many other schools now that are modeled after Sudbury Valley or the Agile Learning Centers or Liberated Learning Centers, there's various categories of schools designed for self-directed education. The challenge for them is to provide a rich environment for children to learn. That means an environment where there's lots of other children uh, across an age span because children learn more from other children especially children who are different in age from them than they do from adults in general they're more motivated to learn from other children Uh, throughout the history of humanity children interacted with other children much more than with adults and learned and learned in that process they're designed to pay attention little kids are fascinated by what older kids do and they want to be able to do those things and they learn when they're playing with older kids, and so on. So an age-mixed environment is part of it. Lots of opportunity to interact with other kids. Um, A number of adults who are, the way I put it, who are helpers, not judges. Uh, The last thing you want if you're learning is to be judged. Judgment puts you in a state of anxiety, in a state of impression management, rather than in a state of... uh, of genuine communication with the other person. So children will go to adults if they trust those adults and they feel like they're not gonna be judged by those adults, Well, they'll go to adults for help. And it's valuable if there's a number of adults. You know, we we evolved in a world where children grew up in bands where there were where all the adults felt like the kids were their kids. (laughs) You know, it wasn't just a mother and a father or just one parent or two parents. It wasn't just like one teacher in a classroom. It was, you could go to any of the adults in the band. Similarly at a school for self-directed education, there's a number of adults that have different abilities, different personalities and children go to those adults to the degree that they want them. The adults don't impose themselves upon the children. But the children go to the adults for help if they're looking for help and that help can be you know advice counseling uh can you you know i'm trying to figure this out can you give me a clue of how to do this or where i can find information about it Uh, most kids don't need that kind of help these days it's so easy to find what you're looking for these days but um, in the past that was more important than it is and to some degree it's still valuable so, so in short, what adults do is they provide the conditions; they provide the environment. Children direct their activities and their learning, but the environment in which they are doing this is um, is presented by adults. We want an we want an environment that's, uh, that that represents uh, represents moral values. You know children acquire their moral values in part by seeing what adults do and what they talk about by seeing the conditions that adults have established um, so at a Sudbury school for example the adults have set up a democratic process the democratic process once it's set up it is a process by which all the children regardless of age have an equal voice in all the rules being made and, and, uh, and where if somebody violates a rule, there's a, there's a uh, justice committee that looks at that and how to deal with that violation of the rule. This is a kind of democratic moral environment that is set up initially by the adults who have established the school. Once it's going, it's run by the kids and the adults together, but it wouldn't happen just spontaneously without adults having uh, established this as part of the school.
2: Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And so in providing this rich learning environment, what do you think about um, the Montessori kind of idea of providing materials that are like specially designed to you know, where children just learn through the process of interacting with them.
1: Yeah, uh, Maria Montessori um, developed her ideas working with um, with children who had um, disorders of various types, brain disorders. And she was concerned that those children were not developing uh, the certain kinds of skills uh, wouldn't develop them naturally, and so she developed a set of toys and and uh, play <laughs> uh, work, as she called it, um, that uh, was prescribed by the adults because the children, um, in her opinion, and probably she was right with the group of children she was working with, uh, could benefit by having those particular kinds of toys. She actually, one of the realms in which ways in which I disagree with Maria Montessori, especially if we're talking about normal children, is that she actually discouraged fantasy play. And I think fantasy play is extraordinarily important to children's development. So she developed these kind of toys. She was interested in constructive play where you're kind of using your brain in certain kinds of ways to do that. So I think constructive play is very valuable, and children engage in constructive play all the time in all kinds of ways. When when they're building fort, when they're building forts outdoors in the winter, when they're when they're making sandcastles, when they're building tree houses, when they're you know there's all kinds of constructive play, and I think that's very valuable. But it's not the only kind of play that children learn from, and I I don't think that most children need those particular kinds of blocks and and moreover it's not really play if you are setting it up and you have an agenda in mind you want the children to learn a particular lesson the thing if you're going to be involved in self-directed learning you can't be you can't have your heart set on these children are in some period of time going to learn the particular things that i the adult have decided they should learn They're not even going to learn to read by anybody's schedule. They will all learn to read. I have yet to find somebody in self-directed education that did not learn to read. They all learn to read, including those who were diagnosed with with dyslexia when they were in public school. Once they're in self-directed learning, they all learn to read, but they do not learn necessarily at age five or six or seven or even eight some of them don't get interested in learning until much later in learning to read similarly they you know they they certainly don't all learn algebra or geometry unless they decide they want to go to college and they have to pass the sat test and they just sit down and learn that stuff (laughs) and in order to get into college and they learn it very very quickly uh so you can't um what you have to do if you're, if you're going to have a child who's involved in self-directed education is you have to give up the idea that there is a certain schedule for learning and that there are certain things that everybody has to learn or they will be a failure in life. There are certain things I agree that are very important to learn, learning how to read, learning how to write or type, learning how to use numbers. I have yet to see a student in self-directed education who doesn't learn those things. Not because anybody's making them learn it, because they're then they're just learning it because they're growing up in a world where these things are important. And children, by nature, learn what's important to the culture that they're growing up in. So,
0: Peter... So let's just say that in the self-directed learning environment, there's a bell curve, and some kids do end up learning to read because they get super curious at three or four or five. Some kids much later. Um, you said you've never seen someone that doesn't learn to read, including kids who might be diagnosed with dyslexia. What is kind of the what is kind of the tail end? Maybe maybe a little afraid to say it, but what is the tail end of that curve in terms of later ages? And what would you do if you were a parent of a child and that later? later um, tail end of
1: the bell Yeah, uh, That's interesting. I did a little sort of informal study, actually kind of two informal studies of learning to read addressing that question exactly. One was quite a number of years ago. It was really some of my undergraduates who did the study under my direction where we identified kids at the Sudbury Valley School who entered the school unable to read and then at some point learned to read. And by interviewing them, by interviewing their parents and the staff members developed a little story about each one's learning to read. In that study, the latest reader was, if I remember right, 14, and of course, there were a number of children who could read by the time they were four, which is true across the board. There are always kids who start kindergarten already, or even preschool, already knowing how to read. This is pretty well documented. There's a certain number of kids called precocious readers who can read by the t- can read well by the time they're four. My son happened to be one of those people, so I got interested in it at some point. And, the, um, and it's very interesting to note that those early readers, there's actually been research done on them, and almost across the board, they're not taught to read. They learn to read on their own. They pick it up. Nobody's, nobody's trying to f- teach them to read. They pick it up, although they ask for help. Like, so, for example, my son, when he was when he was two and a half or so you know we would be sitting at the breakfast table and he'd point to words on the cereal box and he'd say what's that say or we'd i'd be carrying him around on my backpack we lived in new york city and we went every place and he'd point to a sign and say what's that say and so he um he taught himself to read but with my help by asking me questions he was just curious about reading now most kids don't get interested in reading at that age but interestingly those kids who do learn to read at that age (laughs) and it's and there's the research shows that it's not necessarily special kids who do that they're kids who end up you know in every other way they're perfectly average kids average iqs and so on and so forth some of them are from working class families some of them are from more professional families it just depends on uh, the kids somehow getting interested in reading so, I the, I think the variable is, when are you interested in reading? And some kids aren't interested in reading until much later. So, there are kids who, they're, they're outdoors kids, they're art, artistic types, they're doing all kinds of fascinating things, they don't need to read... At some point, though, everybody decides it's worthwhile reading. Now, it, it later did a study using my Psychology Today blog uh, asking readers to tell me, because there's a lot of my readers who uh, are unschoolers, so they don't send their children to school. They don't give them a curriculum at home. They allow their children to follow their own interests. So I asked these, I asked people who are unschoolers to tell me the story about their children learning to read. And again, it was sort of in that same range, anywhere from 3 to 14, I think, was the oldest there. I've since discovered one person who told me, if I can believe him, that he didn't learn how to read until he was 18. He told me that he had been a student at a school for self-directed education, had no interest in reading, left the school, and then decided after leaving the school at age 17 or 18, That he wanted to go to college (laughs) so he said well i guess i'm gonna have to learn how to read i certainly can't go to college unable to read so he learned how to read and went to college he became a philosophy major he reads books that are way beyond in terms of complexity what i'd be comfortable reading so you can learn to read anytime at 18 i think is really weird i it's it's uh it's the unusual person you almost have to prevent yourself from learning how to read to go that long without learning how to read this young man apparently did that but he had no difficulty learning how to read when when he decided it was important I also tell you another little story I heard from a mom that uh, has with her unschooled kid who reached the age of I guess it would be eight or nine without knowing how to read and then the child said uh, I want to go to regular school next year and of course it of course, if you believe in self directed education, the child wants to go to school you don 't prevent them from going to school. but the mom said, "Well, how can you go to school?" You know you would be in I forget what she said maybe third grade uh, and by third grade, everybody has to know how to read how can you go to how can you go to school you you know they 'd put you with the babies." if you can't read. So he said, well, I'll learn how to read. And he learned how to read you know, in a month or two and then went to third grade and did fine. So all these things that we worry so much about, we don't have to worry about them. In fact, our worrying about them, our fussing over them, our tedious ways of teaching them, our testing of them, this makes it hard. This is why it's hard for children because we're We're putting them in a state of anxiety about it. We're acting as if this is so difficult. We're making it slow. We're forcing them to do it our way rather than let them figure out their way of doing it. We take what is pretty easy, learning how to read, and we make it difficult. I mean, think of it. Think of it. Children, all children, unless they've got serious brain damage, learn their native language with no help that is way more difficult than learning how to read learning how to read it's a 26 letter code it's nothing compared to learning the entire language from scratch (laughs) children are brilliant at learning when they're allowed to do it their own way can you imagine the learning disorders we would have if we started teaching children their native language instead of letting them learn it in their own natural way well that's what we've done with learning how to read
0: Thank you. And you're speaking to two people who kind of already agree with you in the, in these ideas. Um, but it still seems to me to be really far from mainstream. I don't know if that's, if that's your, your perception of the, of the world or if it's even moving in this direction. I have an 18 month old son <clears throat> who is, his mother's already very worried about his speech delays and, and everything. And, and while I'm not opposed to the help that he's getting from specialists, um, Uh, I do worry about just the anxiety around, around any of it. And I guess I'm just curious if, if you do have a perception that, 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 that idea that you just shared about not even worrying about it, even at the age of 10, 10, 11, 12 with reading, um, is that catching on at all, or is it still? I mean, I think the mainstream perspective is that's neglectful. You're neglecting your child if you're if you aren't teaching them to read by those ages.
1: Yeah, that is definitely the mainstream view, and um, I think it's I think it's catching on in a growing number of people because there are a growing number of people who are homeschooling, and a growing number of homeschoolers are learning. That it's better to let the child take the lead, and it's better not to worry and push things. Let the child learn. There are more and more home. There's an increase. Not only is there a huge increase in homeschooling in recent times, but there is also a, a larger uh, percentage of homeschoolers now call themselves unschoolers and are allowing children to take the lead. And. So and there's more being written about it. It's not just me. There's a, a book by Harriet Patterson on. Um, she did a study of how homeschooling children learn to read, and again, pointing out the huge range in age, and the fact that those kids who learn to read late end up being just as good readers uh, as those who learn early. There's no difficulty, no problem with learning to read late, uh, and so on. So. So the evidence is becoming greater, and those people who are paying attention to the evidence (laughs) are becoming convinced. But the great majority of people involved with schools and obviously the great majority of parents are completely unaware of this evidence. Mm. And in in fact, I think there's some active suppression of it. I honestly think there is. I think that... um, I think that, uh, for example, schools of education absolutely resist uh, presenting the evidence about what can happen when children are not going to school, are not doing all these things that they're teaching educators that you have to do.
0: So again, we have so many questions. I hope we can get this all in 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 time. But uh, one, one question we just have to bring up is like, I'm, I, I'm able to, I only have my son a third of the time, 10 days, 10 days a month currently, and I'm, I'm in a gifted position where I'm able to just spend that entire time with him. And I've been looking for other families that are also, you know, cause I want him to be around a lot of other kids, uh, that also have some, some freedom to, um, to, 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 to do what you're talking, to unschool, to homeschool, um, How have you seen this be accessible to to low-income, less-privileged families?
1: All right. Well, first of all, um, of course, uh, there's degrees of low income, but there are a couple of studies that I've come across of uh, the average income of people who are unschooling families is actually the median income is less than the median income for uh, the population as a whole. So you certainly don't have to be wealthy to do this. (laughs) Uh, There's there's a huge movement among African-American families for homeschooling. And within that there's a contingent uh, advocating uh, self-directed education within homeschooling. There are some Sudbury Valley, the school I studied doesn't do this, but many of the schools modeled after Sudbury Valley have sliding uh, tuition scales including down to no tuition at all for people who can't afford it. We're working through the Alliance for Self-Directed Education and other ways to try to develop scholarship programs and so on. But there are schools that will take and have taken families from poverty Uh, into a school like the Sudbury Valley School. I think that this kind of education is especially important for children from uh, so-called deprived families, economically deprived families. And the reason I think so is it's obvious that the regular school system is failing them even more than they are failing uh, kids from middle class and above families. It's obvious that it's not working for poor families. I mean, there's the rare kid for whom it's working for, and the that's celebrated and you and it gets in the news and everything like that the rare kid who comes from poverty who's um, who does well and gets into harvard or whatever but the vast majority of kids from poverty are doing far more poorly and have less of a future than uh, the wealthier kids who are going to public and typical uh, private schools uh, I think what uh, a school like Sudbury Valley does or Liberated Learners or an Agile Learning Center does is it provides for everybody a rich educational opportunity because its setting is providing those conditions a literate environment, a numerate environment, adults who know what it's like to go to college in case you're interested in going to college, adults who come from various kinds of socioeconomic background, and you're interacting with kids who come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, and you're interacting as a real person, not as somebody in a seat who's, who's being directed on exactly what to do. You're truly interacting. You're playing games that involve numbers. You know, there's a, uh, there's a uh, a psychologist who's interested in how children learn um, mathematical concepts, and he looked at the. He was interested in the question of why is it that um, kids from middle class and upper class families do better in mathematics than kids from poorer families? He came to the conclusion, based on a lot of research, that the primary factor is kids from middle class and upper class families are playing games that involve numbers, and kids from poorer families are not playing such games. For whatever reason, they're not playing. They don't have they don't have games like Candy Land in the house where you're counting, you're learning how to count because you're playing games. They don't. They're not playing card games that involve numbers with. Um, and so and uh, so they're not um, they're not picking they're not picking up the basics because they're not playing in the same way. So it's an interesting. I don't know if he's right on that, but he presented a certain amount of evidence suggesting that that was true. To the degree that that kind of thing is true, that's remedied. You go to a school like Sudbury Valley, you're playing those kinds of games because that's what the kids are doing.
0: Most parents, what they most want for their kids is for them to have joy, for them to have a joyful, fulfilling life. And I think we get caught up in wanting them to read and achieve and do algebra because we think that that having those skills leads to more ease and more success and more joy in in their life. And for me... I think that the, that the psychological impact of not being pressured and not being coerced and having, having the self-confidence and the self-direction and the, and, and the, the, yeah, ma- mainly self-confidence that comes from, from letting my child be free and just accepting wherever they're at. And even if they're a little behind in reading or math, for me, this psychological benefit and the other kind of like, personality outcomes of taking the approach that you're kind of promoting is worth it. And I would want to provide, I would want to pursue it, even if it meant academically, they would be behind. Because for me, it would lead to a more joyful, fulfilling life to just to be someone who's an independent thinker, to, to be someone who is, who is confident and just like Zen rather than like stressed and anxious about keeping up with the Joneses or whatever. But I think your research and your stance is that it's not even a sacrifice in the academic realm. Is that, is that correct?
1: Yeah, I, that is correct. And so let me, let me make a number of comments on what you said. There's a lot in what you've said. Um, the first point I want to make is, is that you're absolutely right. When you come down to it, when you really ask parents, when you say, I, think about it, think about it, think about what do you honestly want for your child, stop and think about it what people will say, I want my child to be a good person. I want my child to be happy. I want my child to make a living. (laughs) I want my child to be the kind of person who's a good neighbor, and if they're a parent, to be a good parent. This is what people want. People want their child to grow up happy, living a meaningful life, satisfied, and they want them to be good. They want them to be a moral people. And so I define education in the following way. And this is why I say schools are not institutions for education. I define education as everything that you learn that enables you to live a satisfying, meaningful, and moral life. Everything that you learn that allows you to do that. Now I think when any of us thinks about our own life, and I hope we're I hope the three of us are all living what we think of as satisfying, meaningful, and moral lives. Where did we learn what we know that allows us to do that? Some of it might have been in school. We spend a lot of time in school. It would be crazy if if none of it came from school, right? But it primarily came from our experiences with living. It primarily came with in our interactions, our free interactions with other people, our interactions with the community our our uh, opportunities to explore and figure and find out what we really like to do as opposed to what we 're being required to do and so the uh, so how do you how do you devise an educational system that allows people to become educated by this definition and I honestly think. That when, when most parents think about it, that's what they want. They want their child to live a meaningful... I don't know any parent who after thought would say, the most important thing to me is that my child make it into Stanford. You know, And yet we have parents who will cheat and lie and, and bribe in order to get their kid into Stanford. <laughs> you know Why? It's because they're ignorant. It's because they're ignorant. It's not because they're bad parents. It's because they're ignorant parents. They don't realize that going to Stanford has nothing to do with whether you're going to live a satisfying and meaningful and happy life. There are as many unhappy graduates of Stanford or Harvard as there are of any place else. And even by the, even, amazingly, this has even surprised me. There are now two research studies showing, even by the conventional measure of how much money you make at age 40, once you control for background factors like the socioeconomic class that you're coming from, there's no advantage to going to Harvard or Stanford or any of those other schools. It truly isn't. We're all deluded in thinking that there's an advantage. There's actually research by well qualified mathematician and, and, eco, and econo, economists where if you match for background factors, there's no advantage even by the convention, let alone by happiness. There are also, I think, every parent should be aware of the work of Sonoya Luther. She uh, she was some years ago. She was studying um, the effects of what she believed were the effects of poverty on um, adolescent uh, problems. So she was looking at depression and anxiety and substance abuse among poor uh, inner-city kids um, in New York. She was, at that time, a professor at Teachers College at Columbia University and um, attributing what she was observing to poverty. And then somebody raised the question, well, uh, how do you know it's poverty? What's your control group? You know, what if you haven't studied anybody other than poor kids? (laughs) So then she did a study of kids who were in the wealthiest suburbs of New York, in in the Westchester County, Uh, And she found that the rates of anxiety, depression, and substance abuse among high school children there was greater than among the poor kids in the city. Greater. (laughs) And then she, so while for a while she was writing about the problems of wealth, and then she realized it's not wealth. It is the high pressure schooling. Because even those kids who are not wealthy, who are going to those same schools, they're also suffering from all of this. They are getting anxious, they're getting depressed because of the achievement pressure that's on them all the time. And the feeling that they're being measured by their accomplishments and that who they really are doesn't even matter. It's that kind of pressure, and that's the pressure that parents put on their kids when they're trying to get them into Harvard and Stanford and so on. I did a blog post on her research recently, and one can you can find it by looking at my Psychology Today blog, but it's really quite groundbreaking work, and it's study after study, and this follows them. It's not just that they're more depressed and anxious while in school. In high school, they continue to be more depressed and anxious when they're in college and in their careers. They're more likely to commit suicide at some point along the way. They live less happy, less meaningful lives. So you could say that they're highly educated if you define education as getting all A's. If you're defining education as I do, learning what you need to learn to live a satisfying, meaningful, and moral life... Those schools are serving them
2: very, very poorly. Yeah, I I see that a lot with my high school students, um, even in my small town. You know, a lot of my private violin and viola students are these really high achieving um, kids who take all the AP classes and play sports and do every other thing. And, uh, you know, they come to their lessons and they cry because they're so stressed out about their Tests or their exams or their AP, this or that. You know, since I, I play classical music and teach classical music. And um, I, I do, I think it's such a sad thing that, that in classical music in particular, more than any other kind of music, we get this achievement pressure. We play music because it adds beauty and value and meaning to our life. And it's not that anymore, always. It becomes this achievement oriented thing. So, you know, I wanna, I'd like to turn turn that around, we have to, like you said, provide this rich environment with where classical music is around and people who play instruments are around.
1: One of the observations I made was music is not surprisingly a huge thing at uh, schools for self-directed education. Every one of them that I know has a soundproof music room as soon as they can afford it. (laughs) Because everybody, you know, there's all kinds of people playing musical instruments, there's bands, there's all kinds of, you know one of the in my initial study of the graduates of the Sudbury Valley School there were at least three who were professional musicians among the graduates who were good enough that they were actually making a good living as musicians Um, one of them was a classical pianist one was a pop star (laughs) one was uh, one was playing in a military band uh, uh, a band um, and so was a uh, the, what is the national the primary military band i forget what it is but it it's really is a prestigious band to get into yeah so out almost. of a ra- rather small group i mean this was a total of 90 people there were three of them who were doing almost stars in the musical world and wow. um all of them None of them ha- started off by taking music lessons. They just started off by fooling around with the instruments. <laughs> mm. And the one who went to Ber- ended up going to Berklee uh, School of Music uh, in Boston said that what he that it was useful to him to go and kind of learn the formal terms for everything that he had discovered right. <laughs> while he was <laughs> while he was playing on his own and figuring things out. And so. Um, so and that's real knowledge, right? Like yeah. you don't know the name for it, but you understand it. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so, uh, so music and the other thing, art is also not surprisingly a big thing. And in fact, one of my concerns when my son started the school is was. Well, does everybody become an artist and a musician? Do I really want us do I really want a starving artist living in my basement the rest of his life because he can't make a living and so it's important to me to discover that lo and behold, although a, a disproportionate number compared to the population as a whole are going into art and music, not surprisingly uh, there are people in every career, there are people who are, who are business people, there are people who are doctors, lawyers, There are people who are academicians. And so to me, it was obvious, it was music and art were kind of obvious, no brainers, people are going to be doing that. Mm -hmm. But it was not so intuitively obvious to me that you'd have somebody, like one of the graduates who, was absolutely fascinated by economics now why would a high school kid get fascinated by economics who's to say i don't know she went off to college to study economics knowing what she really wanted to do and knowing what school she wanted to do and what professor she wanted to study on under because she had read his books she got into college by talking to that professor about the books he had written and of course he called over to the admissions office and said, you know, we've got to admit this girl. So that's the, uh, those are the kinds of stories that come out of self-directed education.
2: It sounds so much more wonderful than, you know, doing this and that so you can put it on your resume for college. Kids are like obsessed with this now. Like I'm going to do this or that thing that they don't actually care about, aren't actually interested in just so they can write it down on their, you know, bio for getting to get into college
1: that's that's actually another reason i've sometimes suggested i can't swear that this is true i haven't done the study that would be required but i think that students from self-directed education may actually have an advantage especially in getting into elite colleges because they're different so you know imagine that you're the admissions off or you're in the admissions office at a place like harvard or stanford how boring it must be every single resume is all a's all honors classes they've done all the right extracurricular activities they've all done volunteer work you know because they've been advised not because they really are so compassionate about The world, but because they've been advised to do volunteer work as part of your as part of your resume, they all the the essays all look like some kinds counselor helped them write it, and now you come across, now you come across some applicant who says, well. Um, I don't have any grades <laughs> you know I, I, um, I, uh, but let me tell you some of the things and uh, you know I don't have any grades I don't have any I, I haven't taken any I haven't taken any of the required classes that you say are required to come to this college but here's why I want to come nevertheless <laughs> and then they go on with an essay that nobody could have written for them <laughs> it is from it is a genuine authentic essay about what they've done why this is the college they want to go to. In the case of this student I was just describing, she wanted to go to Brandeis because she'd been reading the books. (laughs) Her favorite economist was the chair of the economics department at Brandeis University. So, you know, you're right. So this is somebody who's genuine. That is... That is so rare. You can't throw that in the wastebasket. You just can't do it. Even if it violates all your rules about admission, you just can't throw it in the wastebasket. So you say, well, we've got to at least interview this person, find out more about them. Well, people who've been involved in self-directed education generally do very well in interviews. They're not afraid of authority. They're not afraid of talking to adults. They look you in the eye. They've got honest questions. They're interviewing you as much as you're interviewing them. They come across uh, as, as, as more mature than their years would, would suggest because they have been allowed to take responsibility for their lives in ways that most other young people have not. I believe it. I would choose that student every time.
0: Well, uh, I want us to wrap up with just and Kara again. Please feel free to interject in any way you want in these closing thoughts. Um, but I want us to wrap up just with a little bit of kind of the underlying, you know, values or kind of perspective of of, of your work. Um, I want to su- suggest that you know whether you believe in you know whether you're more in the Darwinian approach, that you or you believe in in God. A lot of us that A lot of the people that are in the parenting groups and that we talk to in this podcast believe that our kids are like endowed with some kind of just like divinity, whether it's the 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 wisdom of millions of years of evolution or, or, or or God, and that and that honoring that individuality of our children, honoring their 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 following their lead and honoring their their individuality is a good way to parent. And to me, that's shown through all the readings I've done of, of your work, whether it's essays in Psychology Today or whether it's, it's uh, Free to Learn. And so I just wanted to hear from you a little bit about that. I, I also know you've had some involvement with the with children's rights m- movements and, and, and that sort of thing. I wanna hear from you a little bit about just your thoughts about, about the rights of our children and, and about our children as individuals.
1: Yeah. Well, well. Maybe first, just a comment on uh, human rights. I mean, we we um, in democratic countries, um, especially in the United States, we um, we really believe in individual human rights. We believe in individual freedoms: uh, freedom to pursue your own happiness, freedom uh, to to um, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of uh, association with whom you want to associate. Uh, We believe that these freedoms are inalienable, right, and um, should not be taken away from people. And yet here we are, presumably raising our children for life in this democracy in a setting where all those freedoms are taken away from them. The basic freedoms that we consider to be basic human freedoms are all taken away from children in school. They don't have the right, they don't have freedom of speech in school. They don't have freedom of assembly in school. They don't have the freedom to choose their own path to happiness. All those freedoms are, the, those, those are empty words when they're taught in school because they are, they are contradicted by every child's experience. I even remember when I was in school, we all used to joke, "Oh yeah, free world, right?" <laughs> you know, I have to ask to go to the bathroom. <laughs> you know, the, uh, the, I have to get permission, <laughs> right? So this is a, we make a joke of of all of this when we don't allow our children to experience those things. If we want children to grow up with democratic values, we have to raise them in democratic values. You know, the, Daniel Greenberg whom I often disagree with, but I certainly disagree with him, agree with him on this. He's the founder of the Sudbury Valley School, uh, has written that here we are raising our children for democracy in the least democratic institution that we have in our society (laughs) schools are the least democratic institution that we have there are no businesses that operate in the way that schools do there's nobody would work at a business that operated that way imagine if you were in a job where you could not talk with your fellow employers, where you were constantly micromanaged, where you were constantly tested and compared and shamed if you were behind, or you were made to feel unduly proud if you were ahead of the other people working with you. How long would you stay at that job, no matter what it paid? (laughs) You couldn't stand it, and yet this is what we put our children in. I just think we have to think about basic human rights. So that's part of what's triggered by the question that you just raised, the thought you just raised. And there's something else that's triggered by it. And then I wanted to say something about looking at children from an evolutionary perspective. So much of our educational system is based on the old idea that children are basically blank slates. That children come into the world as kind of you know one of the old models was they're lumps of clay that we have to mold right that they're they're basically these amorphous lumps of clay and they are whatever we make them and it's this uh, and that's not and and in fact you read the early literature on schooling um, the, not the real early literature but the literature that comes from the uh, 19th century and uh, in, into the beginning of the 20th century as ghouling became uh, compulsory in the United States. Um, and that's the kind of language that one hears. From an evolutionary perspective and everything we know about human beings, that's simply not true. Children come into the world first of all there is such a thing as human nature we all have a certain drive certain instincts certain inborn knowledge just like other animals do we're not different from other animals in that we come into the world with instincts with basic needs with basic inborn knowledge that we don't necessarily articulate but we certainly simply know certain things right from the beginning these are, this is what we call human nature. This is shared by all of us. Part of our human nature are those drives to learn, curiosity, playfulness, sociability. These are basic human instincts. They cannot completely be driven out of people, so we're constantly fighting against that if we try to drive them out. Then, in addition to that, the natural selection also values diversity there's a reason why we have different personalities in the course of human evolution we never operated as individuals we always operated in groups and that's why sometimes i write about group intelligence is more important than individual intelligence it is in the bands that we evolved in you wanted some people who had certain kinds of characteristics. Maybe those would be the people who would be diagnosed with ADHD today. They would be the people who, who whose attention is easily drawn to different things, and who are ready to jump in in an emergency, and who are they're active oriented, and they're and they're and they're not really good at just studying something for a long period of time. But then you also want people who are good at studying something for a long period of time. You want people who are more reflective and you want people, you also want people who are outgoing and and so, but you also want people who are a little more internal. And this is what makes a society work. This is what makes the band work. This is what makes a modern society work. Having people with diverse personalities, with diverse interests, with diverse goals in life is good for us. But school is oriented towards driving all of that out. School wants us to all be the same. If you are different, you get a diagnosis. If you're that ADHD person, you get called you get a diagnosis of ADHD. Instead of instead of valuing that kind of a characteristic, instead of saying, Okay, this is the kind of characteristic that would lead you to be really good at these kinds of things probably not so good at that and this is what children discover on their own when they're allowed to be free but when you're in school and everybody's supposed to be a scholar (laughs) everybody's supposed to be this kind of person then you're fighting the individual variability in people that makes the world interesting and you are turning normal healthy variability into mental disorder you're calling it a mental disorder we have a situation now where something like 30% of children in school have a diagnosis of some kind of mental disorder admittedly a lot of it is is true as depression and anxiety induced by school but something like something like somewhere between 15 and 20% of boys at some point get diagnosed with ADHD What does that mean when we're doing that in the school system? Huge numbers get diagnosed with dyslexia just because they haven't learned to read by the usual methods at the usual period of time. Huge numbers of kids are getting diagnosed with learning disorders and being treated in various kinds of ways for that just because they haven't learned it in the the usual way at the usual time. So we're taking normal human variability and we're turning it into mental disorders. We're becoming a nation of therapy. And the reason we're a nation of therapy is because we want everybody, because our school system wants everybody to be the same. And so people whose personality is different gets called a disorder. And other people who refuse to be the same or who or who or who try very hard to do all that stuff and succumb to the pressure actually do develop anxiety and depression as a result of that. And so... And so, and how does the school system respond? Not by changing what they're fundamentally doing, but by adding more therapists.
0: All right. Well, we want to thank you again for your time. Uh, often we ask guests if you have any, you, you did recommend one one author. Uh, who was that? It was Sonoya Luther. Yeah. Any other like books, if you could only recommend one or two books for, for a parent, um, any favorites you'd want to recommend to us to review on the podcast or for the, our listeners to read?
1: Well, for for anybody who hasn't read, uh, I would recommend Lenore Skenazy's uh, Free Range Kids. Uh, she's just come out with a second edition of this classic book. Um, it was, I call it a classic, even though the original book was only about eleven or twelve years ago. Uh, but she now has a new edition of Free Range Kids. Lenore and I work together uh, at the. Uh, through the nonprofit Let Grow, uh, working with schools, actually, at communities to try to bring more independence and free play into schools. So um, I would also recommend people
2: take a look at the Let Grow website. Thank you. Yeah, and we'll link to those in our podcast notes, too. All
0: right. Well, thank you again for joining us, Peter Gray. You've been listening to the Radical Parenting Podcast. I'm Tony Shawcross. This is Kara Porvaugh and we are joined today by Peter Gray, author of Free to Learn and a large number of other works, including some recent ones this year, uh, a collection of essays entitled How Children Acquire Academic Skills Without Formal Instruction, uh, Evidence That Self-Directed Education Works, The Harm of Coercive Schooling, and I think there was one other, right? Mother Nature's Pedagogy, correct?
1: Correct, (laughs) yes.
0: So uh, please check out his work and find it on Amazon, and uh,
1: thank you for listening to the Radical Parenting Podcast.